Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. And I know a lot of you. <laughs> um, and there's a few of you that I don't know. And so um, let, me, uh, let me just say that um, I was here for 23 years as, as the senior rabbi. And then I made Aliyah about 10 years ago. I worked in Jerusalem first at a place called the Hartman Institute, running educational programs for rabbis. And then I got into this field called educational travel or educational tourism, which is where I'm working now. I'm writing trips for groups and I'm speaking to tourists that come to Israel for and teach certain topics that uh, help help deepen and enrich their experience and um, one just one other thing about me and that is that um, at this synagogue we did some uh, what I call R&D you know research and development in the area of mining the Jewish tradition for its healing wisdom in fact we put on a, a conference that had over 300 people that came and we had from from five different continents. People came from all over the, all over the Jewish all over the world to this conference, and 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 that and that conference was significant, and it, it helped strengthen and launch uh, the uh, what 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 people call the Jewish healing movement. And uh, we're we're very proud of that here at Temple Chai, and uh, Temple Chai has continued uh, to 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 do work in that area, to do very important work and experiment and try things. And I'm very proud of that, uh, that legacy. Um, I want to start by saying that um, many people believe that our generation is writing the Torah of healing. That is to say that our generation, and we didn't, it didn't come out of nowhere. I think you can trace it to, you can trace it to the, beginning of, of the beginning of Hasidut. Uh, I'm talking about modern Hasidut, uh, or the very beginning of modernity. Um, and where, where certain questions started being asked about individuals. The focus in Jew, so much Jewish, in Jewish life was so much on the communal. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later tonight. Um, but people started asking questions about the individual. And then, of course, with, with, the, with the, full, the full, uh, fullness of modernity and, and Sigmund Freud, people started uh, really focusing the questions they have of Torah on this issue of healing. Uh, I learned from my, my teacher, David Hartman, that the questions you ask of Torah very much you know, influence the Torah that comes out of Torah. And, uh, and, and people started asking questions. And, and, and one of the reasons that that happened in a really strong way in recent years is that is, it has to do with a, the, a, a situation that's much larger than the Jewish, the Jewish question. It has to do with what's going on in the larger world. So, for example, when, when science could, could prove, could actually see, the, see it in a microscope, that emotion affects the, the immune system, it would be only a matter of time before people would say, wow, if that's true, uh, which science tells us now is true, uh, it would only be a matter of time before people would look to, to, to ancient religious traditions to find out if there's, if there's some wisdom that could help us with, with emotion and morale and inspiration, uh, help us in, in, in this effort. And, um, and it's amazing how this, this, this business of healing and religion has swept, is all over the place. Before I made Aliyah, 
I was um, at some event, an African-American minister from, from downtown handed me his card, the Something Something Baptist Church. He was the minister of it. And then on the bottom of, of his card, it said, House of Healing. That's, that's, uh, that phenomenon is, is found all over the, all over the uh, religious world. And, 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 and the Jews have jumped into that big time. So, um, so we're going to ask some questions of Torah and see what kind of answers that, that's what, about healing we get. Um, I want to say that a, lot, a number of you studied with me in what, what, we, what we then called the Advanced Studies Program, which, which, which helped launch the Valley Beit was the, the very beginnings of what led to the Valley Beit Midrash. And it, it's possible that you have studied these two texts that we're going to focus on. I brought a third text that you've not studied uh, because I, I, I myself only translated it lately, um, unless you could have seen it somewhere else, but I, I, I haven't used it or taught it. But I want to say something about those, the first two texts, that, for those of you that have already seen these texts, um, let's remember what, what the Talmud says, studying something 101 times doesn't compare to studying it 100 times. Um, and I myself teach, especially the second text, totally differently than I did the first time around when I was wrestling with, with these texts. So I, I want to I challenge you to look, look, look at these texts with fresh eyes, fresh heart. And, um, uh, and so the plan is this for tonight. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, I, I, I really believe in, in Hevruta study. I know some people don't like it. They would really ha rather have the person who, who's flown in from somewhere do all the talking. Um, but I deeply, I deeply believe in the methodology of the Beit Midrash. Um, which is that uh, two people or three people together wrestle with the text, get their heads inside the text, and then you have some commentary from the outside. I think it's a much richer and, and potentially more transformative experience. Um, so I'm going I'm to have you read the two texts. There, you can see on that front page where it says Talmud Bavli Brachot 5b, right? You see that? And then on, on the next page it says Moses healing Zohar. You see that, everybody? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give I'm going to give 15 minutes, which it probably should take between 10 and 15 minutes to do what I'm going to ask you to do, which is to read with a partner, or with or if if you if you really insist with two partners, but not not more than two or three people. Read, and you should read it out loud, taking turns reading. We want to hear everybody's voice. That's part of the methodology of the Beit Midrash. Uh, and I, I, the, the real question I want you to focus on when you re, after you read the text is, what brings healing in this text? I, I, I need to ask you to use your spiritual moral imagination. There's nobody taking a pill of penicillin here. So you have to think kind of creatively, and you have to think symbolically. And think about, the think about if, this was, if this was imagery, what, what does this tell you about, about healing? So um, uh, that, that, that's the assignment, to read them both out loud and then to spend a, a minute or two on what brings healing in this, in this story. Uh, the first text will be a lot easier to understand than the second one. The second one's from the Zohar. And, you know, those were the flipped out dudes that really, you know, those guys were really wild. And so some of, it's, some of, some of the language... It's, it's a little bit tricky, but I'm going to take you through it because it's a very important text. And I feel like I've only in the last uh, few months have I, have I understood this text in a, in a, in a better way. Um, the first text is not, is not so hard to understand. I mean, the, the language isn't. I want to say one thing, one bit of context for that first text. You'll see it's Brachot 5b. I want to tell you what happens in Brachot 5a because that's the context for 5b. And in 5a, they ask the question, what causes sickness? I mean, what, what should you do when you get sick? And it says in Brachot 5a um, that it's very important, meaning you need to take a look at your own stuff, your own self, your own, literally it's to examine your own actions. So that's, that's the first step when you're kind of wrestling with what's happened to you. And then it says, you know, and if you didn't, and if you didn't figure, if, it, if nothing rang any bells for you with that, 
then uh, you should you should investigate. Have you done your have you done what you should have been doing to learn Torah? That's the next that's the next thing they want you to put yourself under the microscope for. And then they say, and if that doesn't give you any clues, then you need to chalk it up as Yisurin Shel Ahava, the sufferings of love. It's because God loves you. And God lays these sufferings on you as part of God's love. Then comes this story that I'm having you read. So that, that context is very important for, for this story. So um, I'm going to take a, a, few, a few comments and then kind of, kind of take you through this a little bit, uh, these texts. Um, and uh, so... In answer to my to my question of what what brings healing, what's, let's name a few of the items. I'm, I'm, I'm on this first text where the rabbis are visiting each other when they get sick, right? Uh, what what brings healing? Let's name a couple of touch. touch nice. What else? Acceptance, Acceptance friendship, receiving. receiving. Nice. Companionship. Companionship. The importance of relationship, right? Compassion. What else? Conversation. Conversation. It's a really important one. I'm gonna. I want to talk about that in some some depth. Acceptance. Empathy. Acceptance. Right. In yeah, and of course, one of the big problems with sickness is isolation. Mm-hmm. That's a huge issue, and when that can be when when to to some extent when that can be overcome, that's very very important. That's why you know it's. It's a it's a mitzvah. It's a, you know I, one Sunday morning at Temple High I went on a rampage. I, I got a little tired of of the what I thought was the reform movement's overemphasis on choice and underemphasis on on commandedness on on what I'd like to call sacred obligation. And I asked 750 kids that morning. I went to every single class in the school, and I said I said. Does it bother you that our, our tradition says that, that, that you have to go visit somebody that's sick? And I had 750 out of 750 kids say, basically say, no, that, that makes me proud. They, their, their response was, that's awesome that our tradition says you got to go do that. It's very, very important. And, and I'm sure many of you know the Talmud's great line about a visit to the sick takes away a 60th of the, uh, of the illness. It's sophisticated enough to say that if you march 60 people in to the to the room, it's not gonna it's not gonna bring the full healing. But they 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 give you the idea that it's very very important. Anything else that came to your mind as you that brings healing? It makes somebody uplifted. If somebody has intention of uplifting you, it gives you more support. Okay. Okay. Yeah. In the last section, there's a there's a instance there of sharing the same pain together. Uh, nice, nice. Uh, a deep moment of of empathy by sharing what 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 uh, Rabbi Yochanan had been through. Right. Truth, honesty, depth of speech. Uh huh. Yeah, and that that that's especially true, I think, because of the context of what I said in Brachot Five A. Okay, in fact, let me jump right, let me start with that right right now. Let me say, Brachot 5a, I, I, I told you what, what the context is, right? These rabbis that they're mentioning here, these are the Gidolim. These are some of the biggest rabbis that rewired Judaism after the destruction of the temple. These are, these are giants of the Beit Midrash. These are not the lower level rabbis who have to sit in the last row. These are the big guys of Yavne and, and what came after Yavne. Okay, and when when they're asked, "Are your sufferings dear to you? Do you appreciate? Can you appreciate the your sufferings and the and the future spiritual reward for your sufferings?" What do they say? No, no, no. no thank you. <laughs> I don't like it. Don't give me that kind of religion. Don't give me that pietistic crap. It couldn't be stronger. And to repeat it after one, after another, after another, they're, they're making an incredible statement about that. 
You know, like I, and it's very, very different than, I'm sure many of you have the version of this story, but once one of my kids was in the hospital and, I got, and was in pain, and I got a call from a congregant who said, Rabbi, I don't know why God is doing this to your uh, kid, but I'm sure God has a good reason. And that's, not a, that, that's not comforting. You know, that, yeah, that's, not, that's just not, you know, that didn't help me that day. <laughs> Um, so this is a very powerful statement about, about not, you know, be careful about the theology that you throw out here. Okay? Yeah. I took that uh, question a little bit differently. Are your sufferings welcome to you? I took it as pay, something's happening here. Pay attention to what's going on inside of you and why you are ill. And then maybe we can find the answer to healing. Okay, nice. I'm going to use that as a, that's, that's great. I'm going to use that as a segue to talking about that, that issue. I think that I learned from, from uh, Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Blanchard, who, who taught this at Temple Chai a long time ago, um, that one way of understanding that question in our language today could, could possibly be understood as saying something like, how, how are you doing? I mean, how are you really doing? Or another possibility is, how far along are you in establishing meaning with what you're going through? In other words, it's a kind of open-ended question where you're inviting somebody to talk. You're not taking the air, the air you're not dominating the airtime, you're, you're, you're inviting somebody to talk. And in our tradition, speech is really important part of the healing process. When I get sick, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about the theology. I don't want to talk. I just want to get better. Yeah. No, it's, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I, I get that. that it reminds me of a guy who once said to me, he said, when I'm sick, or we're talking about rabbis visiting people, when I'm sick, I don't want, I don't want a rabbi. I want a good doctor. <laughs> um, New York Times, January 19th, 2017. I wonder if any of you saw this, a piece called The Conversation Placebo. Anybody, any of you see that? Really interesting. You can Google it and get it. But let me, I want to read to you just a little piece of this. Just came out in the New York Times. In 2014, researchers in Canada did an interesting study about the role of communication in the treatment of chronic back pain. Half the patients in the study received mild electrical stimulation from physical therapists, and half received sham stimulation. All the, equipment, all the equipment was set up, but the electrical current is never activated. Sham treatment, or placebo, worked reasonably well. These patients experienced a 25% reduction in their levels of pain. The patients who got the real stimulation did even better, though, their pain levels decreased by 46%, so the treatment itself does work. Each of these groups was further divided in half. One half experienced only limited conversation from the physical therapist. With the other half, the therapist asked open-ended questions and listened attentively to their answers, to the answers. They expressed empathy about the patient's situation, and they offered words of encouragement about getting better. Patients who underwent sham treatment but had therapists who actively communicated reported a 55% decrease in their pain. This is a finding that should give all medical professionals pause. Communication alone was more effective than treatment alone. The patients who got electrical stimulation from engaged physical therapists were the clear winners with a 77% reduction in pain. That is, they had both a therapist that asked open-ended question to get them to talk, and they had the uh, electrical whatever. We actually have a physical therapist in the room. Uh, well, I've never said this publicly, but my first year of working as a physical therapist, I was embarrassed because I knew that. I knew that. I, when I, I knew that my relationship with the patient made more, and my conversation made more difference, and, and I was embarrassed to talk about it because it 
minimize my skills and my, you know, whatever, my training. And, uh, and I, love, I love that. Yeah. So, um, so I think in terms of speech, I, I appreciate what you said, and I know that many people don't want to be around anybody. No, but I, I talked once with a woman who was a nurse who was involved in uh, one of the drug studies for antidepressants, and she was told not to talk to the people that were coming in each week to evaluate their progress, because that was providing supportive psychotherapy and might confound the results. Yeah. I mean, I mean, <laughs> that's, I, I, anecdotally, I, I would bet that everyone in this room feels, has felt the difference when you have a moment with a doctor where you really get the feeling that the doctor actually cares. Yeah. It goes a long ways. And when you get a chance to talk, one of the most painful things is the, the way we're rushed. And, you know, you wait and then you, you know they're out in the waiting room and they got to get in next. And it, it's, you know... It's, it's, it's really something. There's one thing that nobody mentioned here in terms of healing, and I want to I touch on that, and that is the, the crying yeah, at the end. That's what I was getting yeah. the Yeah. Um, and um, uh, Rabbi Yochanan uh, walks into... I'll take you through this story because it's a little bit, um, little bit odd. That, um, so this is the... Um, Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer fell and Rabbi Yochanan went in to visit him. He noticed he was lying in a dark room and he bared his arm and light radiating from it. Rabbi Yochanan was considered in Talmudic times to be the most good-looking rabbi in the history of the world. He was so good, he was so good looking that uh, they, they liked it when he would sit in front of the mikveh when the women were coming in uh, to go to the mikveh so that they could get... Uh, cleansed and then go home and make love with their husbands and have a baby that would be good looking because the last thing they saw before the mikveh was this unbelievably good looking guy, Rabbi Yochanan. Um, it, 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 it always, yeah, it always cracked me up. The places, both in the Tanakh and in the Talmud where they focus on this, this issue of how good looking certain people were. Um, Joseph in the Bible was, according to the Midrash, the most good looking guy in biblical times. Um, maybe King Saul was also in that category, um, but anyway, um, he's he's he he lifts his he lifts his sleeve up, and and it's hard to know. I mean, to some extent, so light radiates. So is it a spiritual thing? Is it you know? It's hard to exactly know, but whatever, it's part of his part of his uh, dynamism. This this light that radiates from him, and it lights up the room. And and because there's light in the room, he he sees that Rabbi Eliezer was crying. He says, why are you crying? Is it because you didn't study enough Torah? Surely we've learned that the one who sacrifices much and the one who sacrifices little have the same merit provided their heart is directed to heaven. You have good kavanah. Don't worry about the amount of Torah you study, but go into it with a, with, with a good heart. Um, is it because of a lack of sustenance? Do you feel bad that you didn't make a very good living? Not everybody has the privilege of it to enjoy two tables. That means the table of learning and the table of, of parnasa, of uh, making, a, making a living. And is it perhaps because of a lack of children? You don't have children and, you, and that's why you're crying? This is the bone, some, some translations say the tooth, of my tenth son. Rabbi Yochanan buried ten kids. And he would carry, he would carry it around precisely because when he would visit people who were hurting, you know, I, 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 I have, he was making a statement with that. And, and then he replied to him, I'm weeping on account of this beauty, you, Rabbi Yochanan, that's going to rot in the earth. I'm crying because you're, you're going to die. And then, and then Rabbi Yochanan said, on that account, you have a good reason to cry. <laughs> And they both wept. They both wept. And then he said, are your sufferings welcome to you? He said, neither they nor their reward. And he gave him his hand, and he stood up. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I thought was sort of funny here is the person who like asked the question and then answers it. So he kept asking, is it this and then he kept rebutting yes, his right. questions. So he kept asking him questions, but right. not having conversation answering those questions. Right. Until he finally asked the question. Right, right. 
Um, and the turning point is crying. And you know, the liberation of the Jewish people in Egypt begins when the Jewish people cry out to God. There is something about crying. I've talked to a lot of therapists at Temple Chai through the years, and I've had many therapists say that they, they have seen where crying was a, was, a, was a catalyst, that something happened after a, after a really good cry that led to, to some kind of healing. And um, I would like to tell a story. Some of you have heard this, so I feel, I feel a little awkward doing it, but for the people that, that I don't know in the room, I'd like to tell you my, my most dramatic story that has to do with crying and healing in my rabbinate. I was asked to visit uh, a 16-year-old girl with anorexia. And um, the mother came in and said, she's been to UCLA, she's been to the University of Arizona, named somewhere else that she had been, and she basically hasn't eaten in nine months, and she's at Good Samaritan Hospital, and they're very worried about her heart, and blah, blah, blah. And, and, it, and the mother says to me, it occurred to me today that it might be it might be helpful if, because she always liked her Judaism, would you go see her? So I said, of course. And I, I, considered it a, uh, I considered it something that I needed to move on right away. And I, um, I got ready to go and I canceled an appointment and I got ready to drive downtown. All of a sudden I had this idea, based on what the mother told me, that I would bring a Torah to the hospital something I, I had never done, and by the way, I had never did it after this event. And, but I wasn't sure if it's appropriate or it would be allowed, and I called Dr. Howard Silverman, many of you know him, who at that time was involved with the training family, uh, tra tra training family practitioners at that hospital, and I told him what happened, and I said, Howie, do you think it's appropriate? Can I, c will, will they let me do this? Can I do this? And if you know Howie Silverman, he immediately said, you know, please go ahead and do it, you know. So I went straight downtown. I went in there, and I, I held the tour, and I sat, I sat next to the bed, and I said, uh, and, and we started talking and talking. And it was one of those situations where, you know, I knew she was not giving me the time of day. I mean, she was blowing, blowing, you know, just blowing me off. And so at that point, um, I said to her, I said, would you like to hold the Torah? And she said, yeah. And so she moved her bed up a little bit higher, and I put the Torah, she held the Torah like this, and she's kind of reclining, holding a Torah. And then we talked some more, and I, I immediately noticed that, that there was something different about her at that point. And then I said, hey, do you remember from your bat mitzvah, do you remember the, sh the, sh the Shema and the Via Hafta? And she said, yeah. I said, would you sing it with me? She said, okay. And together we sang the Shema and the Via Hafta. And then I said, do you remember the Avot and Givarot prayers in the Amidah? And she said, yes. And I said, will you sing it with me? So we sang the Avot, and then we sang the Givarot. The Givarot thanks God for the powers that God has given us to lift the fallen, heal the sick, and free the captive. And while we're singing um, the Givarot prayer, I got a little choked up because I said to myself, I'm thanking God for powers. I'm sitting next to a 16-year-old who does not have the power to put a piece of food in her mouth. And I got a little choked up in my voice. And, and when I got choked up in my voice, she got a little choked up in her voice. And when she got choked up, I started to cry. And when I started to cry, she started to cry. And when she started to cry, I started to wail. <laughs> and then she started to wail. We were sobbing. And I have no idea how, how long it lasted. It was a very powerful moment. And, and when, it, when, when it stopped, she said, I'll have lunch. And there was a nurse walking by. And I went out and I said, she said she'll have lunch. And I want you to know this nurse ran down the hall. I then called Howie Silverman up. And I said, I said to him, you might want to come here. And see this. So if you think I'm exaggerating the story, you can check with Howie Silverman because he, he witnessed this and she ate. And thank God she's okay. So I, I think that's, that, that's a, the crying part of that story is, uh, is, this, is this right here. Um, I want to make a few other key points about this text. Um, they, they make clear that it happens to us all, that we all take turns Right? At one time or another, we're all, so this rabbi visits this one, and then he's sick, somebody visits him. We all, we all have this. 
Um, number two, I, I spoke about the problem of isolation already. Um, the symbolism of give me his hand, it's not just, I, I think they, I, the rabbis are sophisticated enough. It's not, you know, it's not just that uh, the, rab, the rabbi is a, is a miracle he, uh, worker, healer. It's, I think it's symbolic of, of involvement, relationship, um, and, and, uh, and the person then is able to bring himself up, up on his feet. Um, Okay, any last uh, comments or questions about this text? Okay, let's go to the Zohar. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. What brought healing to Moshe? What's that? The Ten Commandments. The Torah. Okay. What, what, what's another way of framing that or thinking about it? Where, where did he go? Sinai. It's really Sinai and whatever happened at Sinai that did that. Okay. Now, I, I want to take you through this. But when Moses told told this, that is God's demand for their freedom, to the Israelites, they couldn't hear Moshe because of crushed spirits or shortness of breath and because of the harsh slavery. That's why they couldn't hear Moses. What is crushed spirits? Said Rabbi Judah, they had no rest. They had no chance to breathe. Come and see, as it is written, and Moshe spoke before God, saying, Behold, the Israelites have not heard me. How in the world will Pharaoh hear me, I who have uncircumcised lips? Okay, this whole Zohar Midrash, this is a Midrash on the Torah from, this, from, the, from the, the Bale Zohar, these Zohar rabbis who were, who were always probing the Torah to come, come, out with deeper, come out with deeper Torah. And they're very playful. They don't mind turning Torah on its head in order to come out with something they feel is, is, a, is a, you might even say, is a deeper, more compelling Torah than what's in the Torah. This is the verse that they're focusing on. They're focusing on, on this verse. They couldn't hear Moshe. And the Torah says they couldn't hear Moshe because why? Because they were crushed. That's, that's going to be what the Zohar says. The Torah says they couldn't hear because they were, cr they were short of breath. Been, they, the, the slavery was overwhelming. Uh, I wrote a play in college called Calm Down Moses, um, a two-act play. I, I ha My brother just told me yesterday that he, he, re he recently found it. I, I, don't even, I don't even have a copy anymore. And he uh, acted it out in one of his classes. And, and the whole, this, whole, this whole play I wrote, I didn't even know what a midrash was then that time in my development, uh, but my, the whole play was around this one line, uh, wrestling with this issue of why, why couldn't they really hear him? And this idea of crushed spirits, I mean, I, I, in, my, in my spiritual imagination, I imagine them saying, you're telling us that there's a God of freedom who wants us to, to leave? Well, I, well, we haven't seen much evidence of any God of freedom in a long, long time. And... Uh, you know, between the beatings and the attempted genocide, and, you know, we can only imagine how crushed the spirits were. So the Torah says the reason they couldn't hear is because of the crushed spirits. But that's not what the Zohar does. The Zohar says the reason that, that they couldn't hear is because Moshe can't talk. So they turn this on its head. Then they're going to try to explore how, do, how, how does Moshe get healed. Let's go back to the text. So it says, so they give this line from, that Moshe says, you know, how, are the, how, can the, how is Pharaoh going to hear me? Because I have uncircumcised lips. What is this M of uncircumcised lips? Was it not written in the beginning of the story? I'm not a man of words, for I am heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. We all know that Moshe was a stutterer, right? The Holy One responded to him, who gives a person speech? And God said to Moses, I will be with your mouth. Did the Holy One not keep his promise? Wait, what's Moshe complaining about? God said, I'll be with your mouth. What's, what's the problem? 
However, there is a secret inner meaning. Moshe had kol, and dibur was in exile. Moshe had voice, but speech was in exile. And he was closed off from being able to express words. Now we have to stop for a minute. They create a category, these rabbis of the Zohar. They say, you have something inside you, let's call it raw voice. Raw, the ability to make raw sounds. And then you have, you have, then you have dibur, which is speech, which is the ability to take those raw sounds and to carve them into words that people could understand. So they want to talk about something kind of primordial inside of you, some kind of a, let's, let's call it, they call it voice, right? And then you have something called speech. And Moshe wasn't wired upright. He wasn't connected. He didn't have the, that inner stuff inside of him connected to the ability to, to speak words that people can understand. And why? Why didn't he have this? What do they tell us? Because he's in exile. What, what kind of exile? The worst exile, the Egyptian exile, which, which, is, which is not just living in a ghetto in Poland, but you're, you're a full-time slave. Um, see, by the way, at this point, it's a good idea to stop and say, can we, can we understand this concept of, of having spe your speech is in exile? Have you ever had a moment where your speech wasn't quite wired up well enough to what's going on deep inside of you? Have you ever had a moment when your speech was thin or insecure or just not? I mean, I, I want to translate this into categories that we can relate to, right? So, I mean, I think mo many of us have had moments like that. Yeah. I, 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 uh, the first time I taught this, I gave the example of Bill Clinton after the Monica Lewinsky thing. His speech was different. I don't know if you, if you paid attention to this, but he, his speech wasn't quite what it was before, you know, uh, before that. Um, something happened on the inside, and the speech became, uh, more, I, I think, more insecure and thin. However, here is a secret meaning. Moshe was voice, and speech was in exile, and he was closed off from being able to express words. And therefore, he said, and how will Pharaoh hear me, seeing that my word, spe uh, speech, is in exile, I being only voice and speech is cut off from me because of exile. And therefore the Holy One partnered Aaron with him. We know that Aaron, it was so bad that Aaron had to do all the talking. Okay? Come and see. The whole time the speech was in exile, voice departed from him and words were sealed in without voice. When Moshe came, the voice appeared, but it was a voice without speech, for speech was in exile. And the whole time that speech was in exile, Moses, they repeat this, went his voice without speech until Israel approached Mount Sinai to receive the Torah. At that moment, voice and speech were united and the word was spoken. As it says, and God spoke all these words, the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Then Moses was found whole in speech, voice and speech as one in wholeness. And when he went out from exile and joined together voice and speech as one at Mount Sinai, Moshe was made whole and was healed, and it was found then that voice and speech were as one in wholeness. Okay, um, I think it's really interesting that not just Moshe, but in the, mid, in the Midrash, in Rabbinic Midrash, the rabbis imagine all of the Jewish people were disabled. And they stood at, they, they, were at Mount, they came to Mount Sinai, all of them were disabled. And I think in part, they're trying to express something very important with that midrash, something about that that generation so maimed by the slavery of experience, uh, the experience of slavery, nevertheless was able to, something happened at Sinai that brought a great healing into the world. And I think that's what that midrash uh, ev evokes. The question is, what is Sinai? What does Sinai represent that, that could bring that could bring healing, that could get Moshe connected up in the right way. How, how do you understand that? They experienced God at Mount Sinai. Okay, nice. A unity. Good. What's that? A unity. Uh huh. The people and him are there. Right, and the, and right, and the midrash goes into that that whole issue. That it was the greatest unity at that moment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That that I think is the key thing. That that's. That's where they got um, the mission. 
They got the purpose. They got the, they got the, you, you know, they got the Ten Commandments. They, they got the charge. This is what you're supposed to do. This is your job now. Yeah. A realization, finally, that they're free. It took them to get to Sinai to get there. And before then, they're, you know, they're, they're looking over their shoulders. Yeah, um, but, but I want to say that that, but that includes that, that, somehow, that somehow they came away with a sense of, it wasn't, uh, we're free, let's go party. It was a free, we have a job to do. It, yeah. was, it was a deeper understanding of joy, uh, of, of freedom. Um, yeah. It, it's also the, the first moment since creation that the creator and the created join together. Yes, yes. And I want to tell you something. I, I just read one of the most extraordinary books of my life. It's called Religion and Human Evolution by Robert Bella. Robert Bella is the foremost sociologist of religion in the world. So you see Berkeley. And this book is an extraordinary book. One of the things that he goes out of his way to show is that up until Sinai, moving out of, moving out of hunter-gatherer tribes, that's where we were a long, long time ago. We were in small hunter-gatherer tribes. We then evolved into having uh, what we would call a country. They didn't use words like that, but a large group of people together who were held together by the way they related to the king, and the king was connected to God in various ways. It was God's son. It was God's, uh, the king was the one who held heaven and earth together. Uh, the king was God. Uh, all kinds of different things that associated the king with God, and everybody fell in line. Everybody in this larger, it helped bring unity to the larger group. At Sinai, the Jewish people form a society for the first time in human history without the king, because it's, it's a covenant, it's a breach, it's a partnership between a people and God. And that meant that the kings were no longer um, king, I mean, in the ultimate sense. There's, there, there's somebody bigger than the king. And that was a huge moment in, in world history. And, you know, you think of the Magna Carta and, and, the, and the, those efforts to reduce the power, the divine right of kings and all of that stuff. This is where it happened. So this is a powerhouse moment. And look, look at this key verse at the beginning about Moshe having uncircumcised lips. Circumcision is all about the sign of the breed, of the covenant. So what brings healing to Moshe is this powerhouse moment in, war, in world history that's going to change the world. And, and the Jewish people come, out, come away with a mission to, to create a world where, 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 where their partner would be comfortable. Yeah. Of course, it didn't quite stick. Jews went back to kings. Yeah, but, 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 but the kings were not divine. And, and, you know, King David, you know, the, the Jews started falling in love with kings again because, with David. But, but, you know, what they appreciated about David was that he was human. He does teshuva because he messes up royally again and again and again. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And as Felix said about the joining, that then created, I think, a um, concept of people that there was a universe bigger than themselves and a concept of God, that mm -hmm. there is a universe. Mm -hmm. bigger, yeah. And bigger than God somehow. Right, right. Uh, any other comments about this? Okay. Um, the rabbis like the fact, I, I really like this, this point, I learned this from Malila Helner, that the rabbis like the fact, the rabbis of the Zohar, like this idea that Moshe can't talk because, because he's in exile. They think that's appropriate. And that, you know, it would take it would take coming to a place of, of purpose and mission and, and all that stuff that, that we associate with Sinai um, to, to change that situation, to not, to not be in exile. Um, I think it's an interesting spiritual question to ask, you know, what's the category of exile for, for us in our, in our own, you know, what, what, when are we not in exile? When are we, you know, in exile? Yeah. 
metaphorically, mm -hmm. you know, the exile is not necessarily a physical exile. Mm -hmm. We're just any time that we're cut off from God, cut off from uh, you know, that, 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 yeah. that, 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 yeah, that we are separate or cut off from, from God and higher power. Yeah, or cut off, cut off to our own. You know, this beautiful morning, you know, um, the soul you have given me, God, is a pure one. You've created it. It's a very important prayer for the, the rabbis of the Talmud uh, to remind ourselves. We have, we have a, you know, deep inside of us, there's, there's a pure, holy, holy part of us, and we get cut off from it. You know, we, we mess up enough, we, 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 can't, we can't even access it. Um, I, I love the, I don't know if you ever read the biography of Eddie Hellasem, who was the adult Anne Frank from Holland. Beautiful biography that she wrote. She wrote. She wrote her story during the war. She was like 28 years old instead of 12 years old, and she describes prayer. By the way, she was totally secular, and during the Holocaust, sort of found found a certain spirituality. And she describes prayer. She says, she says, we're like a well, and at the and what happens inside the well is that dirt and rocks and all kinds of garbage gets filled up inside the well. And the art and the act of prayer is to, is to take out that stuff and so that we can access deep inside of us that's something that's really pure. And then to use this metaphor, then we get hooked up right and we can, uh, we can get healed. So what I want to do now is just very quickly take you through some, some, what, what, uh, some, what, what I, some principles that I came up with uh, uh, Jewish healing principles, and we get to the last one on 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 joy by Rebbe Nachman. Um, we'll stop and 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 take some time on that on that last one. The first principle I, I I call don't get stuck. Do you see that? Are you with me? I love this Albert Einstein. Life is like riding a bicycle. Keep your balance. You must keep moving. Don't get stuck. And right underneath that is a reminder that. Um, that Shabbat cancels the cancels the cancels the the ritual of mourning, and and of course all of the so many of the laws of mourning are designed to make sure that people don't get stuck in the act of mourning, and I, I love this old Jewish custom of when when the shiva is over, you walk around the block, and and of course when we all lived in, in neighborhoods Jewish neighborhoods, it was a way of signaling to our neighbors. You're back. I, we, we have completed our shiva. We are now, you, and you literally walk out of your shiva. You might say, don't get stuck. Getting stuck is, is, is not good for your health. Um, and I've got some other nice quotes here about Shabbat as a, a day to help get unstuck. Now look at number two. Wisdom item number two. Uh, the, the, human be, the, the human being has extraordinary healing powers that Selim Elohim has extraordinary healing powers. Somebody, how about a, we'll have one of our doctors read this, Dr. Albert Schweitzer. Can we have a doctor read this, uh, please, Ron? Uh, patients carry their own doctor inside. They come to us not knowing that truth. We are at our best when we give the physician who resides within each patient a chance to go to work. Okay, you guys agree? To yeah. some extent, yeah? Johnny? Yeah? Okay. Um, so we have amazing healing powers inside of us. I love this uh, Black Elk quote, Ogallala Sioux. Who, anybody feel like a Native American experience would like to read this? <laughs> of course, it was not I who cured. It was the power of the outer world. And the visions and, the, and ceremonies had only made me like a hole through which the power would come to the two leggings. If I thought that I was doing it myself, the hole would close up and no power would come. Well, at certain, a certain point, a certain level of arrogance on the part of a healer will not, will not be helpful. And number three, uh, it's a, a healing in, is a sacred obligation. I love this Rambam on the Mishnah Nidarim. The warrant for healing is based on Deuteronomy 22, 1-3. If you see your fellow's ox or sheep go astray, do not ignore it. You must take it back to your fellow. And so, too, you shall do with anything that your fellow loses and you find. You must not remain indifferent. Somebody's lost their health, just like somebody might have lost their sheep. You have an obligation to return it. It's, I really like that. I'm going to come back to this Aviva Zornberg 
because she's going to help us understand something beautiful about, about joyfulness. Uh, number four is ceremonies are crucial. I quote uh, from uh, Healing Ceremonies by Dr. Carl Hammerschlag and Dr. Howard Silverman. Cool little book if you've never seen it. It's all about healing ceremonies. Um, we don't need to read it, but it's t- the idea is that ceremonies are very important and helpful in the healing process. The last little bit of Jewish wisdom on healing that I'd like to share with you, I want to go into some depth on it, is Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. And uh, it's, it, it's interesting that a guy who struggled with depression all his life uh, has a lot to say about joy. Um, and um, so would somebody like to read Rabbi Nachman? Yeah? Good. It is a great mitzvah to be in joy at all times and to become, in order to distance oneself from sadness and black bitterness with all one's strength. The main thing is to work very hard, using all your strength to only be happy always. It is human nature that we draw ourselves into inner darkness and depression due to things that happen within time. Every person is filled with suffering. That's why we have to force ourselves with great strength to be happy always. Give yourself joy however you can, even by being foolish. Yes, it is true that a broken heart is considered very good, but that is only at a special time. You should indeed pick an hour each day to break your heart and to pour out your words to God as we have taught. But the whole day long you should be in joy. A broken heart can easily lead you to melancholy more readily than too much joy can lead you to stupidity. (laughs) Our tendency is more that of broken heartness leading to the dark places. Therefore, be happy always. Only in that specially designated times should you allow yourself to have a broken heart. So in a nutshell, Rebbe Nachman says, you got to be happy, <laughs> um, but take an hour a day to break your heart for the suffering in the world. That's in a nutshell. Yeah. I'm reminded of a sort of a secular uh, dealing with that, and that would be Abraham Lincoln was known to be a depressive, but was also known for great funny stories. Nice. Very nice. I hadn't thought about that. It's great. Um, yeah. And, and, of course, I love this line about the it's better <laughs> uh, foolishness, <laughs> foolishness at least. To, you're more likely going to get messed up by, 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 you know, than, being, than having the foolishness make you stupid, too stupid. Um, uh, I, I, I was very touched by it when I first read this because m- my dad was somebody who, with his incredibly corny sense of humor, was constant. And he, I think he suffered a lot as a kid. His mom died when he was three years old, and uh, they were poor. There were all kinds of stuff. But he, uh, with his corny humor and his foolishness, he was able to be, be joyful so much of the time. And I think that joyfulness was really an important part of his health and strength. I mean, he was hardly sick a day in his life up until the very, up until he had a stroke um, at 68 years old. But uh, anyway, um, I want to, I want to talk to you, but I made some notes about some thoughts about joy that I really want to share with you. First of all, I want to say that in the Tanakh, I wonder if you can guess this. In the Tanakh, what is joy mostly associated with? Eating and drinking. Eating and drinking. And there's just one other thing. You're 100% right. That's two-thirds of it. What did you say? Togetherness, uh, which often happened at a festival, at a, at a holiday, or a Shabbat, whatever. But togetherness and eating, it's all about food and being together. That's, and the word sameach appears in those contexts over and over and over again in the Bible. Um, along comes Maimonides, leave it to Maimonides, in the, in the 12th century, to make joy a legal obligation. <laughs> Maimonides says it's a legal obligation, it's a great avodah, which best translation would probably, would probably be serv- service in this context. Um, 
and it is obligatory, and God will punish someone who doesn't do it. And by the way, this appears in the laws of in the Mishnah Torah in the laws of Sukkot, specifically the laws of Lulav. You are commanded to rejoice on, on Sukkot, and if you don't, you are liable for punishment. Maimonides likes that kind of, you know, that kind of language. Um, joy is not marginal, it's essential. And there's two contexts for the Rambam for, for the issue of joy. One is joy in performance of the mitzvot. You shouldn't be grouchy and depressed about doing mitzvot. You should do mitzvot. I once had a family from France over to my house for a Shabbat lunch, and it came time for the Birkat Hamazon. This was a very observant family. And um, I think they hated, I think they hated the Birkat Hamazon. I mean, they really resented it. Uh, they knew they had to do it, but it wasn't exactly the joyful, you know, like you're doing a mitzvah, enjoy it. And the second context is in the context of love of God. Um, so, um, okay, now uh, there's a really beautiful place, the Rambam. Do you remember the story in the Bible where they're, 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 they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem and, King D and David dances in front of the ark and he dances, he's a little bit immodest. He's wearing uh, not the modest clothing. I guess he's wearing like a little cloth stuff that jumps up when he jumps up. And the, I mean, the Bible goes into great detail about, that, about what he's wearing and him and his immodest jumping up and down. That, and, and that the lowly and that the maidservants see him. And then Michal, his wife, who is King Saul's daughter, who is upper crust, she is really ticked off at David. You know, uh, you know how, how, uh, I forget the line, how, how the king has... Uh, pranced in front of the, the maidservants, you know. It's like, this is such a low-class thing you have done. And Maimonides defends David, which is interesting because uh, Maimonides is into moderation, balance. He doesn't like excess. And you could say that David's behavior is a bit excessive, but um, he, he uh, praises David, and it seems to be two reasons. One is that, that Simcha... Has to, has to be expressed in the, has to be in the body. And he likes the fact that David has embodied the simcha. Um, and, and simcha should be lifne Hashem. It should be as, as serving in front of God uh, as part of, part of your religious life, we might say. In, in Sfat, they, they went a ways toward strengthening the whole joyful thing. And that they want you, they really emphasize this idea that you should, um, that you should be joyful doing the mitzvot. And they talk about joy as being sort of the, the, the root of everything. And then along comes Rebbe Nachman, and he changes, he changes the whole playing field. And basically he says that he changes uh, from doing mitzvot from joy to the joy being a mitzvah in and of itself. The first time we have that in the Jewish tradition is Rebbe Nachman, that, 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 we, that, that, that joy is the mitzvah, we are commanded to do it, um, and, uh, and, and that's picked up by, by, the, by, the, by, the, by Hasidut. Has, the, the Hasidic movement makes that a very big deal, and, um, and they go along with Rebbe Nachman about this idea of one hour a day, and they basically say that... Um, uh, you know, there's no more um, that a, a broken heart is the, is the greatest vessel for receiving God's light. And that, and, but, but, but you got to limit it to an hour a day. Even, even though it opens you up to, this, to godliness. And um, uh, they, they also did something else. They, they actually explicitly say, the early Hasidic movement rabbis say, that, um, that simcha is rifuah gedolah. It's, um, it's, it's a big healing. Uh, and by the way, the Baal Shem Tov was really the founder of modern Hasidut. He's most famous for being, for being a, a healer. The... Um, uh, Back to Tzfat in the 16th century, the Ari, Isaac Luria, 
had a custom of not talking on Shabbat, he would only sing. Please pass the challah, I'd like to have a little challah, whatever. Whatever he did, he sang. Um, and, um, and finally, I want to quote uh, my teacher, David Hartman, about joy. He does a beautiful thing by picking up how in the evening service, it says, Nasiach bechukecha v'nismach b'divrei tortecha v'mitzvotecha le'olem v'ed. We will reflect on your laws and we will rejoice in the words of your Torah and your mitzvot forever. We will, we will rejoice in your words of Torah. And here's what David Hartman says. In receiving, in receiving mitzvot, we experience joy in knowing that God accepts human beings in their limitations and believes in their capacities to shoulder responsibility. In fulfilling mitzvot, we experience joy in performing mitzvot for their own sake, lishma. And just as there is joy in our acceptance by God, so there is joy in our acceptance of God and of the mitzvot for their own sakes. Divine acceptance empowers human acceptance in the form of our serving God with joy. We manifest our love for God by performing the commandments with joy, that is, for their own sake, and not as a means to have God gratify our needs. Maimonides writes a lot about this in the 10th chapter of the Mishnah Torah, Masechet Hilchot Teshuvot, Teshuvah, the laws of Teshuvah. And he stresses this idea of us doing, doing the mitzvot out of love the, um, and, not, and, not, and not for reward, not for God, not for God uh, gratifying our needs. And a last thought about joyfulness. I, I want to ask you to consider the words of Aviva Zornberg, great Bible scholar in Jerusalem. It's on the previous page under category three. Did everybody see that under the Rambam? Category three, un underneath the Rambam. Everybody there? Would somebody like to read this first one? And then somebody else read the next one, please. Lori? It is in the very nature of holiness to translate pain into strength, even to intuit the strength within the pain, the coherence within the chaos, the importance of spiritual work, the spiritual journey to help people place their disease in context. There may not always be recovery, but there can be healing. Why don't you read the last one now, too? A calm disposition gives bodily health. Where the spirit is at ease, the body becomes light and free. A dreamlike, ethereal nature is restored. The body is integrated, moves with an elan, a really substantiated lightness involving the whole being. Only the slightest impulses needed to activate the lightness that pervades his whole being. A reference to Jacob, who upon lifting up his heel is lighter following his dream at Bethel. I, I, I really love this, and I, I can't, I don't always understand Viva Zornberg, what she's really saying, but there's something about this idea of lightness. Um, and, and I think that, in, that where, where the spirit, where your spiritual, when you do your spirituality homework and you know you're, you're listening to that part of you, that voice, that, or the part that comes from, however you think of it, the part that comes from God, the part that comes from uh, deep inside of you, the part that comes from our traditions, wisdom and, and mitzvot, that when you're listening and, you're, and you got your act together, there's often a, you carry yourself with a little, with a little more lightness. Do you under, does this resonate with you at all? Um, I mean, on a simple level, I know that when I'm eating more like I'm supposed to eat and I'm a little bit lighter, uh, on that level alone, I know that I do, I do better in, in, every, in every way. I'm, I'm more resilient. I'm, I'm more joyful, and uh, I think there's something about this, uh, this lightness. And I love this idea of Jacob lifts up his heels, and he's, you know, uh, he, can, he can walk with a certain a spring in his step. Amen. Thanks for coming. This is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. 
At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.